Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Titus. It's interesting the way different authors of Scripture handle uh, the coming of Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Um, Matthew, throughout his book, focuses on how prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled. And he does that right from the beginning when he's telling the birth of Christ. He says that he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Um, Luke gives more detail. He kind of uh, gives the human interest stories that come along with the nativity. So Luke is the one who's going to talk about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. Uh, He focuses on Mary. He focuses on uh, the two older believers that were in the temple. Uh, You have Anna and you have Simeon. Uh, He alone focuses on an event from the childhood of Jesus. So he kind of warms it up and he he tells the personal angle of that. Uh, John is bombastic. Um, John begins by saying, in the beginning, and you might think he's quoting Genesis, but he's actually doing the sequel to Genesis. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And he goes back cosmically and says that the baby born in a manger is actually the God of all creation. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, Paul is different. Paul, when he is describing the coming of Christ, uh, as you would expect, he writes in his epistles about Jesus coming. And he does it with more of a theological focus. Uh, So he will say, Uh, that in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes in to describe how Jesus was born uh, and and how how God became flesh in order to save us. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, he talks about uh, the deity of Christ. And he says that, that this man, Jesus, is the very image of God in human flesh. And he, uh, in Colossians, talks about not only uh, God become flesh, but he's the creator of all. Everything was done for him, for his glory. He's the head of the church. Then we come to Titus. You might not think of Titus as a Christmas text. I assure you, however, that it is a Christmas text because it speaks to us of the appearance, or rather the appearances, the advents, the comings of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, And we're focusing in a few moments in Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11, uh, I memorized in Awana Club. For the grace of God uh, that bringeth salvation uh, hath appeared to all men. ESV says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace has come to earth, and the appearance of grace on earth was the birth of Christ. Grace Incarnate. This is a beautiful Christmas text. We're talking about that today, but I want to take a look not only at the beginning of the life of Christ, but at the end of Scripture's teaching about Christ when he is going to return. We'll read about that in Titus 2.13. I want to talk about the lives that we are living on earth, kind of in this meadow between these two great peaks. We have these two great mountains. We have the the coming of Christ to Bethlehem. We have the coming of Christ to the future with power and great glory. 
And in the middle, we are living out our Christian lives day by day. Love to talk about mountains. Anybody have a guess what mountain that is? If you've been there, you probably know it. Beautiful mountain uh, with red rocks in front of it. The red rocks are the Garden of the Gods. This is Pikes Peak. Uh, I spent much of my childhood in Colorado Springs. And uh, Pikes Peak would look like that, but with variations every day. It It was just remarkable. And for me, Pikes Peak what was kind of a stabilizer where I would know wherever you were in, in the city of Colorado Springs, if you're trying to figure out you know, where north is, you look, you look to Pikes Peak, and Pikes Peak is always in the west. Okay? I mean, Colorado is basically Kansas until you get to the front range, and between Colorado Springs and Denver and up to Fort Collins, you know, all of a sudden you hit the mountains and they go straight up. So eastern Colorado is flat, western Colorado just is bumpy. The mountains were in the west to me. Now, my parents live in Divide, and uh, I looked on a map from Divide. They actually are kind of on the side of the mountain at 10,000 feet elevation. Uh, To them, Pikes Peak is south, actually southeast. You know, it changes. It's, It's like saying, you know, the ocean is always in the east. Well, it kind of depends on where you are. You know, it the ocean is in the east if you're in Florida, unless you're on the Gulf side, and, you know, it, it changes. Well, I want to talk about these two great peaks. They're not changing, and they do give us a, a great deal of stability and instruction. Jesus has come. Jesus will come again. The, the two most significant events in history And we are living in the middle. We are living between Jesus' two advents. He has come. He will come. He came in grace. He will come in glory. And we read about that in Titus chapter 2. The sermon is titled today, Jesus, the coming of grace and glory from Titus 2. 11 through 14. Now, I'm going to get a running start and actually go back into chapter 1 and then uh, jump ahead and we'll read into chapter 2. And I trust that this will be a message. It's not, it's not about a manger, shepherds, angels, wise men, uh, but it is about the coming, the appearing, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Let's stand and read the scriptures together. going to start in a weird place in chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul is writing to a young pastor on the island of Crete, and he's trying to help him set the church in order, and Cretans were notoriously sinful people, and he says Christians are supposed to be different from that. So he says in Titus 1 and verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. 
And then, and then here's kind of the crux of the book of Titus. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So they make one profession, but their lifestyle is very different. It's like, like James would say, you say that you have faith, but prove it by how you live. And he, he actually is urging Titus and the Cretan church to, to work, to obey, to live lives that are godly. So uh, verse 16, again, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, but they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's important. They're supposed to live obedient lives so that the word of God is not reviled, so that they don't have living that is inconsistent with their profession, as we saw at the end of chapter 1. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We're seeing that a lot. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Okay, Again, you don't want to be a bad testimony before the world. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Your life, if it's godly, can dress up, it can adorn, it can actually make the gospel more attractive. Conversely, your disobedience, which was happening at Crete, your ungodly life can actually uh, bring disrepute on the gospel. So he's urging that kind of obedience. And then we come to verse 11. The reason I read all that is because verse 11 is not changing the subject. He's been talking about Christian living in the home, in the workplace, before the world. And then he says, verse 11, For, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, King James says, looking for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of God that has profit for us today. Let's study it together. Be seated, please. What a great text, Titus 2, 11 through 14 is. Commentator William Hendrickson calls it one of the richest, richest passages of holy writ. All right, commentators always say this is the best passage in the Bible, but this is a great passage. Another commentator, Donald Guthrie, calls it one of the great summaries of Christian truth. It's not just, you know, beautiful random facts. This is the 
core of Christianity. Speaking of the coming of Christ and its effects on his people. Now, it is filled with Christian doctrine, and it is shared to inspire everyday obedience. All right, Killian Hill, you know this, but the concept that preaching will either be doctrinal or practical is so bogus. There is nothing more practical and life-changing than right doctrine. So he's arguing for people to be good husbands, good wives, good employees, to be honest, to have good testimonies. And in the middle of all these practical applications, he says, let me motivate you. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And it changes you. It causes you to resist sin and to pursue good works and righteousness as we look for our blessed hope, the Lord Jesus. There's nothing more practical than right doctrine. And it really is very comprehensive. It describes the past and the present and the future of biblical Christianity. But not only biblical Christianity. It's not just about Jesus coming and Jesus coming again. But it's about your life in the meadow between those two mountains. It's about your life today and tomorrow until the Lord takes you home. What a powerful passage it is. Begin with verse 11. We're talking about Jesus first gracious coming. I would summarize that by saying we have a Savior. Titus 2.11. Let's read it again. For the grace of God has appeared. You, you can almost put a period there and say just, just stop there for a moment. The grace of God has come to earth. It has appeared. And what has it done? It has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then the next point will be training. All right, you have this declarative fact. And then you have, then you have these, these descriptions. It has come. And, and what is it doing? What is the grace of God doing now that it has come to earth? It is bringing salvation. It is training us to renounce ungodliness. Grace has come. This appearance. I'm using all these different words. This appearance. The Greek word actually is the source of the word epiphany. Epiphany. That might not help you. It's more complicated than appearance. An epiphany is a revelation. Something that maybe was veiled... It is, it is something that is being manifest, something that is being announced, something that is arriving on the scene. And he says, the grace of God has appeared. It, it came to earth in order to bring salvation to all people. There's a sense in which we can say the coming of Jesus was the coming of grace. Now, that's not to say that grace wasn't active in the Old Testament. Of course it was. You know, people that make this dichotomy, they say the Old Testament was about judgment, the New Testament was about grace. You're missing all the grace of the Old Testament, and you're missing all the judgment of the New Testament. Revelation will make the Old Testament, you know, look rated G by comparison. It is going to be violent. So, so don't buy into that Old Testament was hard, New Testament is gracious. But although grace and truth were active in the Old Testament... They have come in a newly powerful way with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Grace has appeared. And it appeared with the coming of our Savior. So, 
So when we have a baby born in a manger, and when we have all the record of, of the announcement to shepherds, the, the angel choir, probably two years later, the magi bringing gifts, all of that is in celebration of the theological truth that Paul says, grace has in a new and powerful way arrived on the earth. It actually is reminiscent of John chapter 1. You're welcome to turn back there, but I'll read John 1, 14 through 17. Listen to the emphasis on grace. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And, and part of that is the glory of his power, but part of it is the glory of his grace. It says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 16. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Just great, uh, great grace that is heaped upon grace. And all of that has arrived with the coming of Jesus. And he does make this distinction in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Grace has come to the world. And it came with the appearance of the Lord Jesus. What did he come to do? He came to be our Savior. Again, the grace of God has appeared, has been manifest, has arrived, bringing salvation. The message of Titus 2.11 is that with the coming of Jesus, we have a Savior. It's bringing salvation for all people. If you're using the King James, uh, which I love, I love the wording of it, the cadence of it. King James word order says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And it, it sounds like the, the appearance is what was for all men, that everybody saw him. Now, actually, the word order in, in the Greek, it says, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. Okay, so... So what is universal is not just the appearance. What is universal is the saving. Okay, that doesn't teach that everyone will be saved regardless of whether they believe or not. That, that's heresy, universalism. But what it's saying is that the coming of Christ gave this universal offer of salvation, a, a sufficient sacrifice for salvation. And I, I don't want to get into the extent of the atonement. But the coming of Christ was for everybody. It's offered for everybody. And anyone who responds, regardless of age or gender or background or your sinful past or your ethnicity, it is for all humanity. Once again, you have this hint of missions. That the gospel is not something that was for a select few to enjoy and hoard. But it is a message that needs to be told needs to be shared. It's the coming of grace. Jesus' first coming was a gracious coming. He came to be a savior for all humanity. I want to talk to you about that word, that word grace. My favorite word in the English language is grace. You know, there are, there are other times there are other times when we celebrate uh, other words. There's so many perfections in Christ. There's a Christmas song that we sing, fairly new from the Gettys. It says, joy has dawned upon the world. 
I should say world. Joy has gone upon the world. Okay, joy arrived with Jesus. True. There's another Christmas song that I have on a, a favorite uh, album. It says, love came down at Christmas. True, love came down at Christmas. But Paul's going to tell us that the incarnation is uniquely an expression and an evidence of grace. The grace of God has arrived with the coming of Jesus, and we could actually say that Jesus is grace incarnate. He is God's grace in human flesh. We would be hard-pressed to find a word that is more essential to Christianity. And there, there are many. But what makes Christianity distinct from the Judaism of, of Jesus' day or Paul's day? Or what makes it distinct from so many isms in our day? Whether, whether it be Roman Catholicism or whether it be just, just a general Protestantism, Americanism, that, that God will reward you for your good effort. Grace obliterates all that. Grace says that you have nothing to contribute to God. And in spite of you, he has sent his son to do all of the work required for your salvation. It's the coming of grace. Titus 2.11 tells us that grace has appeared. Titus 2.13, we're skipping a verse. Titus 2.13 is going to talk to us about the second coming, the second epiphany. It actually is going to use the same word. And it's going to talk to us about the coming of God's glory. And again, it's tied to the coming of Christ. So look back at your Bible, Titus 2, verse 13. It says that we're living, we're living in this zone between the two comings. We are waiting for our blessed hope. And, and what is that? Our blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, grace appeared at Jesus' arrival, and now glory is going to appear. Again, you have that word epiphany. There's, there's an advent. There's a coming. There's an appearance that is yet in the future. It is the appearance of Jesus when he comes, not as a lamb, but as a lion, as a king. Jesus' second glorious coming, we call it his second advent, his second arrival, is when Jesus comes again. And I love the hymn that says, not in, in lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we will see him but in glory at the Father's throne on high. The second coming will not be quiet it won't be a silent night. It won't be humble and modest. Jesus is coming, the Bible says, with power and great glory. And once again, we have this epiphany. We have this second peak in human history. The Bible tells us that we are to perpetually be looking, waiting for Jesus' return. This is our blessed hope. I've told you that when I was a young man, uh, messages about Jesus' return were so prominent. And, you know, you'd have conferences on, on prophecy. 
I actually think that the lack of emphasis on Jesus' return today is probably an overreaction to the overemphasis at a time. You know, there were so many books that were written by, by Jack Van Impe or, or Hal Lindsey. And then you had, you know, the, uh, you had the Left Behind series, and, and it all seemed so kind of fascinating. And, and we kind of got weary of it, and we don't talk much about Jesus coming. Do you know, Jesus... Jesus is coming again. It's not, it's not maybe. That's not the belief of a few fringe uh, Christians who, you know, believe in dispensationalism or something. That, that is the teaching essentially of every book of the New Testament and is predicted in the Old as well. Christians are called by Paul those who love Jesus appearing. That's, that's who we are. We love the appearance of Jesus. We say with John, Jesus, come quickly. We are groaning. We are waiting. We long for you to come. The Bible says he will come. It calls this our blessed hope. I cited Hebrews 12 too. Hebrews 12, 1 says that we are running with endurance the race set before us. And then it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the author and completer of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is in glory, set down at the right hand of uh, God, the blessed hope of the Christian. Now, I'm not trying to be cantankerous, but let me just give one word of qualification. This is describing Jesus' glorious return. Many times you'll have a, you'll have a, a doctrinal statement from a church, and it says, you know, we are eagerly awaiting the rapture, comma, our blessed hope. Technically, this isn't talking about a secretive appearing. It's talking about a glorious appearing, you know, something that, that cannot be missed. I'm not saying the rapture isn't happening. I'm not saying that the rapture can't even be understood here, but this isn't talking primarily about that hook and then, and then later he comes in glory. It's talking about the entire epic of Jesus' return is that he will come with power and great glory. Everybody will see him. It will be unmistakable. That is our blessed hope. Jesus, come fix. Come fix this broken world. The text is so full when it talks about the great God and our Savior. Uh, the, the Greek there doesn't talk about two people, God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The great God who is also our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it affirms very overtly the deity of Christ as well. What a passage. Homer Kent comments, he says, The coming of Christ to claim his church and vindicate her by a glorious display provides motive and stimulus for Christian conduct. Once again, what I'm saying is, this high watermark in teaching about Christ is happening in order to motivate people to be good husbands and good wives and honest employees and have a good testimony before the world. This passage is, is teaching us about Christ's first coming and his second coming so that we will live like Christians. It's so practical. Biblical prophecy is given not to incite debate or division, but to provide encouragement and motivation every single time. 
When Bible prophecy is given, when we hear about the coming of Christ, it's not so that we can grill somebody during a doctrinal review, an ordination. It's, it's not so that we can have a chart, and, you know, if your chart doesn't line up specifically with my chart, then you're a heretic, and, and you know, I, I separate from you. It's actually said, you know, we live in a hard, bloody, broken world, but Jesus is coming. Encourage each other with that. Let it motivate you to godly living. That's what Bible prophecy is supposed to do. So, back to this illustration. Titus 2. Verse 11 is the gracious coming of Jesus. Verse 13 is the glorious coming of Jesus. Verses 12 and 14 talk about your life right now in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We move from the past to the present and to the future. Verses 12 and 14, let me summarize them. I've already emphasized these points a lot, but let me summarize them. We have Jesus' first coming. We have Jesus' second coming. But verses 12 and 14 describe Jesus' work between his comings. (coughs) That is his work in us. And it's not just that we have a Savior, or it's not just that we have hope. The Christian life is not an escapist, just, you know, just hang in there and wait for Jesus. You know, just hunker down until he comes, hide out. No, it actually is, is very active that we are to grow. And again, this is actually the point of the whole text, beginning in verse 1 of the chapter. It's all about Christian living. Do you remember the end of chapter 1 says that Cretans live these godless Lust-filled lives. It says Christians shouldn't be that way. Christians don't live like Cretans. There's supposed to be a difference between the way we live and the way the unsaved live. Okay, there, there's supposed to be a black and white. You used to be one way, but now the grace of God has changed you to live another way. We see that throughout the New Testament. We see it in 1 Corinthians 6. You know, all of these kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, but the gospel has changed you. We're going to see that in chapter 3. Let's just look at it very quickly. Chapter 3 and verse 3 says, For we ourselves were, past tense, formerly, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. So he talks about all kinds of lust, and then he talks about you're just, you're mad, you're vengeful. He says, we used to live like that. We, we used to be the natural man, the natural woman. We used to be unsaved. We used to be Cretan-like. And then you get to verse 4, and you have one of those but God statements. There's an interruption But God changed that. He didn't only bring forgiveness. He changed the way we live. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, the word epiphany comes again, it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. He made you new. He gave you life. By the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He gave you new life. He gave you an indwelling spirit. And his point is not just arguing against work salvation. He's saying you cannot be the same as you used to be. 
We used to sing a kid's song, the things I used to do, don't do them anymore. And then at the end we'd go, there's been a great, great change, change. You guys ever sing that? Would you like to do it right now? Absolutely. We will not do it right now. It's been a great change. There should have been a great change. It's the whole point of 1 John. If, if you've been born again, if God's seed is in you, 1 John 3, 9, you can't live the way the unsaved world lives. You have to grow. Titus repeatedly emphasizes godly living that adorns the gospel. I've mentioned that to you. Dress the gospel up. Make it look good. And he talks about good works so often. Titus 3.5 says we're not saved by works, but the rest of the book says make yourself an example of good works. Jesus is saving people. Look at verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, to, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're not saved by works, but Christians are supposed to be zealous for good works. We are hot after good works. We want to do good in the world. We want to be generous. We want to be kind. We want to be forgiving. We want to do anything we can for the glory of God to be of service to him and to other people. Christianity changes you. And so, again, I'm certainly not doing the passage justice. But it says the grace of God that brings salvation also teaches you to fight sin. Churches churches today love to talk about how the grace of God has brought salvation. We don't emphasize, verse 12, that the grace of God teaches us to renounce our sinful former way of living and to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness. Look at verse 12. The gospel, the, the, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Verse 14 is going to do the same thing. Let's, let's repeat that. Even Jesus, when he came, he came to, to give himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's all of the sin and vice. And then positively, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 12 has negatives that we stop living in sin and positives that we're zealous for good works or or we're zealous to pursue righteousness, godliness. And then verse 14 does the same thing. It says, Jesus came to redeem us from sin and to obtain a people that are pure and zealous for good works. I've said this many times, but Christian, the, the Christian ethic is a holistic transformation of your entire person. The Christian ethic is not an ethic of avoidance. Well, you want to be a good Christian? Don't smoke, don't chew, don't cuss, don't, 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 don't. He tells you, don't do wicked things. But positively, do good works. Be be godly, be righteous in your conduct, be self-controlled, be Filled with the Spirit and manifest His fruit, not only through the avoidance of vice, but through the pursuit of virtue. You're not your own. Titus 2.14 is, is neglected. You know, we don't talk enough about what Jesus has done. Let me read it one more time. 
All of this really gets us ready for the Lord's table. Talks about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, now listen to this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, from sinful living, from wickedness that's been described in the passage. He gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He wanted us to belong to him. And not only to belong to him, but to be zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself, according to this text, for two reasons. To ransom us, not only from from the guilt of sin, but from the practice of sin. From sinful living. And to purify us as his own possession. I'd put it this way. Jesus didn't die just to forgive you for sin, but to free you from sin. We used to live that way, but now we don't. And I have to say, isn't that Romans 6? Isn't that what we've been studying? You're justified by faith. So shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can you keep living a life of unrepentant unrepentant sin with, with no remorse? With no grief. But this one, instead of saying that you died with Christ and risen with him, it just puts the focus on what Jesus has done for you. Jesus went to the cross and he bore your sin and he bore God's wrath and he died and he rose again and he did it so you would stop sinning and be pure and pursuing good works. Christian message is not just about Jesus getting you heaven. It's about Jesus changing your life now. The whole book of Titus teaches it. This is where we live. Your entire life, you're you're living between Jesus' first coming and a second. And, And the way I would look at Pike Speak to kind of orient myself, you ought to be looking at these events to orient yourself. To remember, to, to be motivated, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be convicted. So we look forward and backward to Jesus, our Savior. And this passage says that that we do that all the time throughout our Christian life to keep us going. It's a perfect segue to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11.26. We're told that we take the bread and the juice in remembrance of Jesus And and we're mindful, we we judge ourselves, we pray, we confess. But your focus isn't primarily on yourself. I've told you, for years, every time I observed communion, I didn't remember Jesus, I remembered how bad I am. You gather in remembrance of Jesus, so you confess your sin. You come with a clear conscience, not because you're worthy, but because you're forgiven. And then we read, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's his first coming. And you do so until he comes. That's his second coming. So as we partake of the bread and of the juice, mentally be be thanking Jesus that he came to earth to be your Savior. That he went to the cross to pay for your sin. That he rose again. But you're mindful of his promise that he'll come again. That that he won't partake of the cup until he does it with us 
in his kingdom. And you're remembering his death until he comes. So, so you're looking at both of these great events. That's the privilege that we have today as we partake of the Lord's table. If you're a Christian today, be moved to gratitude, to worship, to wonder at the two appearances of the Lord Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you don't need bread and juice. You need Jesus. You've never come to know him as your Savior. Today could be the day. Jesus appeared to be the Savior of all people. You need to trust him as your Savior. Repent of your sin. Ask him for cleansing and forgiveness. He will save you. Just ask. For, for today, just don't worry about the bread and juice. Let them pass. You trust Jesus. But Christians, this is a special time for us together to remember the Lord's first and second comings. Grace and glory. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the beauty of the Christmas story, but also the theology, the, the practical theology of what Jesus has done and how it should affect the way we live today. Now, as we remember Jesus, not only through the word and preaching and singing, but now as we remember Jesus through the Lord's table, uh, might we adore you. Might we do this with understanding and gratitude and humility, confession of our unworthiness, and, and thanking Jesus for what he's done on our behalf, even as we sang together. Thank you, Father, for giving your Son, for leaving your Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, what a great work you've done to save us. We give you glory. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.